Open your Bibles this morning again to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Last week we started looking at the introduction to this particular introduction into the rest of the letter by examining the gospel realities that occur in our life when we have been saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked last week at what it means to have gospel confidence in a chaotic world, according to verse 6, in which Paul writes, and this morning we want to continue on and look at two other realities that occur in the life of a believer and for which Paul is thankful and for which Paul is giving thanks and rejoicing uh, in the presence of the Lord for these believers because of what they have experienced. And so let's read verses 1 through 11 this morning and then we'll go back and make verses 7 through 11 our attention and the focus of our consideration this morning. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, may we hear the words of the Apostle Paul written so long ago to these Philippian believers as our own this morning. Thank you, Father, that you have not only inspired this wonderful message, but you have preserved it for us that we might benefit and grow in grace through Jesus Christ because of it this morning. So, Father, we do pray that you would take your word and that you would do with your word what you've always done with your word, that you would create life where there is only death, that you would shape and form and create that which is glorifying to you in us. Let a spiritual work of creation continue in us that all who see us would give thanks as the Apostle Paul does for these believers because they see the goodness and the glory and the beauty of God reflected in his created work of righteousness in us. So, Father, let it be to the praise of your name as our creator and as our redeemer. We ask these things. Glorify yourself now through your word. Amen. 
And so Paul begins by boosting our confidence in verse 6 by reminding us that there is a work that has been begun by God that is being begun and completed by Him until the day that Jesus Christ appears or calls us home. And so Paul, you remember, in the midst of this entire introduction is expressing gratitude. He's so thankful for these people. And there's such joy in the Apostle Paul that there is a a common salvation both in him and them that is overflowing. That it's a cause for his constant source of praise and worship and thanksgiving to God. Wouldn't it be great to be a people so informed and so changed by the Lord Jesus Christ that whenever people think of you, they can't help but go straight to the Father and to offer Him praise and thanks for what He's done. I want to be those kind of people. I, I desire a church full of people that when we think of one another, that our first response is to begin to praise the Lord for all that He's done in each other as we think about each other. And, you know, it's right just by way of, of just practical, personal application. When, when you think of a work of God in someone's life, it's always right to commend that work of God in them to them. How encouraging it is when people tell you, like, I see the Lord so at work in you, I'm confident. Paul, I'm confident in this very thing. The one who began it is working in you still and will be until the day of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful encouragement that is. And so always, brothers and sisters, be looking for ways that we can encourage each other through the realities of the gospel as Christ is at work still in us just as he was in the beginning. And so Paul is filled with that attitude of thanks and that attitude of praise because he sees God at work in them. Beginning in verse 7, Paul has now given his commendation of gospel confidence in verse 6. And now in verse 7, and for the following verses, Paul speaks of their gospel, not only confidence, but their gospel participation. Notice what he says in verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. If you go back to verse 5, it seems that Paul has uh, gone back to his original thought there in verse 5 where he says that he gives thanks because of their participation in the gospel, their fellowship, their commonality is found in the gospel. And as we said last week, the gospel is not only something that Jesus did, it's who Jesus is. Jesus is the good news. He is the promise one. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And Paul is rejoicing that they are in Christ along with him. He's not there alone, and he's rejoicing in that. And then he takes that small detour in verse 6, and now he's back onto that thought in verse 7, it would appear. They are participating with each other. And I want you to notice something, that in their participation in the gospel with each other, that it always has produced in them affection for each other. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know how to love each other more? Dwell on this. 
your common participation in the gospel with each other. Love for is always rooted in participation with. We are together in Christ Jesus. Christ has saved us from our sins. And the more that we realize what God has done in each other, it will breed an affection for each other. So many things in our culture today and churchianity, if you will, try to recreate that feeling of love. All sorts of things are brought in. Well, if we did this, we would love each other more. And if we do this, we'll love each other more. And and we hear terms about creating community and all sorts of things. And there's programs, which I've never uh, really seen it succeed, that programs can produce the type of love Paul's talking about. This is natural, organic, unfailing, unending love. How do we build that? How is that type of love and joy fostered? I'll tell you how it's fostered. By dwelling on your own salvation and realizing the salvation in the way that God saved you from being the sinner that you were and still would be is the same thing He's done in other people. And when we have that commonality, it builds because we understand we are participating in one thing the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work that he is busy doing. Paul is ecstatic that these people have experienced what he himself had experienced. On the road to Damascus, Paul knows what it is to be radically saved, to be radically rerouted and redirected. And it it, it thrills the heart of the Apostle Paul to know that these people have experienced the same thing. Different road, same salvation. Brothers and sisters, are you aware of what Christ has done for you? Do, Do you really understand who you were prior to meeting Christ? Do you understand where you would be without Christ? That ought to raise within us such joy and to know that just as I have been saved, so has my brother and my sister. And we are all together in this. What a glorious and joyous thing. It's, it's, not, it's not surface clutter. It's not programmed. It's not trite. It's genuine and it's real. Notice how Paul expresses that genuineness in his words. He said, it is only right for me to feel this way about you. I want you to know that this word feel is not an emotion. It's not a, the, the way we might use the term feeling. And, and I think we, we've all grown weary of living in a world where everything is rooted in how we feel rather than what's true. That gets kind of old, doesn't it? Well, I feel this, and, and, and how you feel tomorrow will be different than how you feel today. So, therefore, reality has to change tomorrow because it's all based on ever-shifting and changing feelings. That's not what Paul is saying. The word that Paul uses literally means to have an opinion, an informed opinion or understanding of something, to be, uh, to be uh, educated in your thinking and thinking for a purpose or a reason. And Paul says, I have this feeling about you in my heart because I know what you are doing. You are partakers with me in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is convinced that they have been saved just as he's been saved. That's cause for his great joy. But he is also convinced of this. 
that, that they have suffered with Paul, that they are proliferating the message of Christ to others just as Paul himself is. They are partners together in suffering and in ministry. And Paul says, that brings me great joy. A church that rejoices over their common salvation is a church that will rejoice together in their common persecution. And Paul is giving thanks for that because they have stood with him. They sent not only a gift to the Apostle Paul as he is in prison, but they themselves are doing the very work that put Paul in prison and would no doubt cause them to be imprisoned at some point as well. Common salvation will be the glue that holds us together in common persecution. And so Paul rejoices that he is not alone, that they have <clears throat> participated with him. And because of this, he is overwhelmed in all of his being, and he feels this, he knows this to be true about them, and so he is confident in God's work in them being genuine, and he is moving on in his praise to the Lord because he sees this in them. Again, what produces this commonality is the common denominator of suffering both in their imprisonment, both in their persecution, their mocking for preaching Christ and defending Christ and defending the gospel. These people have suffered like Paul. They've suffered with Paul. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to endure what is coming in the world all around us, we must first begin with that gospel confidence that Paul speaks of in verse 6. That is assured in verse 7 as we stand together in the common work of the gospel and we don't fear the reprisal and the, the insults of the world. Why? We are doing it not alone. We are doing it with Christ and with all the people who are in Christ with us. Just in the past week, we've received at the church two letters from Christian families in Canada, asking about the possibility of immigrating to this part of Texas because of the religious persecution that is going on in Canada and is increasing in Canada. And they, they feel that their Mayflower moment, some of them has come and it's time for them to leave and to get to a place where there is at least more freedom in order to be able to worship freely with their families. And when you, when you receive those types of emails, I, it's sobering. I, I get those and I read them and I think, man, has it really come to this? Are we really at that moment? And the answer is yes, and yet there's a, there's a strange encouragement in that moment as well. Christians seeking out Christians, because here's Christians that we have found through websites and social media and other methods and means, and, and, and they too are standing for Christ. They too are standing for the gospel. Let's go with them. And that's Paul's heart. He is happy that they are with him, even though it is suffering that has linked them together and suffering because of the gospel more fundamentally in Christ that has linked them together. These people are warriors. I want you to notice that they are continuing 
in the confirmation of the gospel. They, they are continuing to contend for the gospel. They're not backing off. They're not quieting down. They are continuing to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this world's only hope. We don't contend for the truth because we like to fight. We contend for the truth because we know it alone will save. We contend out of a heart of love for the world around us that is dying and going to an eternal hell apart from Christ. That's why we contend for the faith. We believe it will change your life. And we want to see your life changed and true joy that Paul has and that these Philippians are being urged to have is forged in the fires that burn away all other trivial things. This kind of joy can only be forged in a fire like that. That fire that forges us also burns away the things that are so meaningless that they cloud our vision of who the Savior is. I think that's a message that we need to take particularly to heart. Brothers and sisters, what is it in our lives that is clouding a clear vision of Christ? A clear vision of Him who is the great Savior and the great uniter of His people. These fires of affliction, these fires that Paul has experienced and that these Philippian believers are experiencing is beautiful because not only does it forge the bond, it purifies the chaff out of their eyes. Now they can see clearly. It's a forged faith. It is a tested faith. It is the strengthening of their faith. This is what true fellowship entails. You don't don't get this type of fellowship. You don't get this kind of commonality. You don't have this kind of bond by just simply frolicking and having fun and eating together. That's the... Isn't that what we often think of when we think of fellowship? Oh, we're going to have a fellowship. That means we're going to have food and have fun together, right? Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But the Bible has a different idea of what fellowship looks like. Remember the word that Paul uses in verse 5 is that word koinonia. It's used, people in churches name their Sunday school class, the koinonia class, or the koinonia small group, or the koinonia this or that, and it's often built around this idea of just, you know, fellowship, conversation, fun. Paul says, to me, koinonia is forged in the fires of testing and purification. When that happens, there is a bond and a joy that is so deep, a bond and a joy that will not be taken away easily, so, so strong as Paul's love for them and gratitude for this truth. Look what he does in verse 8. He invokes an oath, something very rare. He says, God is my witness. For God is my witness. How true are all these things? How right are all these things? I'll tell you how true and right they are. I'm calling God to witness. No, brothers and sisters, that is not something a God-fearing person does lightly. You are calling the one who knows everything to bear testimony to the validity of your statements. God knows. I'm calling God to witness what's in my heart. Well, God knows what's in your heart. You may deceive everybody else, but you won't deceive him. And so Paul could, could, could just be 
blowing smoke, as it were, and not sincere in what he's saying. He says, I'll show you how seriously uh, I take this. I'm going to call God as a witness to the affection and the truth that is in my heart for you. Oaths are something that God has regulated. He's not forbidden them, but he has regulated them very heavily. You don't take the name of the Lord lightly. You don't invoke an oath lightly. And yet Paul is willing to do that here because of the seriousness of the message. He says, I invoke God as a witness, to call God to witness what I am saying to you as being true. Now listen, if what you are saying is not true, then that is the most dangerous proposition you could ever make. But if it is true, then it is one of the most glorious things that you could do. In Paul's case, he asked God to bear witness to the intense love that he has for them that has been forged through their mutual participation in proclaiming the gospel and defending the gospel in suffering. Paul's love for them is of the deepest nature. If you haven't read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book on Christian fellowship, you need to read it. I believe it's entitled simply True Community. But Bonhoeffer gets at the very heart of what Paul is saying here to the Philippian believers. Fellowship, true koinonia, true belonging, true being welded together is not something that we program or do out of trite thoughts, but something deep and lasting, arising from the very deepest part of who we are, saturated by a common love for Jesus Christ. Do we feel that way? Do we feel that way about one another? Oh, that that God would so work in us that we do feel that way about one another, so that we, we, we could praise God greater for one another. Give thanks for one another in a more uh, intense way than we've done. Do you love people like this? Not a hypothetical question. Do you love people like Paul loves the Philippians? You should. You're expected to. You're commanded to. Do you love people like Paul does. Do you love people enough? Yeah, I love people in our church. Would you invoke an oath before God to bear witness to what's in your heart towards those people? Remember, he knows. He knows. Do you really love those people? I think we would say that we love each other, but I wonder, is it that kind of love that we have, or another type of love that we've defined? Is our great motivator a love for each other that is so deep that it's loving them like Christ loves them? Think about how Christ loves you. Think about how Jesus loves you. Patient. Forbearing. Seeking. Forgiving. Not easily irritated, not complaining, not petty. Christ wants you to be spiritually formed in that way, with that kind of love. 
Oh, that we loved each other enough to be so confident in our love that like Paul, we could honestly before the Lord say, Lord, you witness, this is the kind of love I have in my heart. And not be afraid in the next moment you're going to be zapped. But to be genuine about it. Paul's love for these people and their common participation, their gospel participation together is a beautiful picture of what a church should be. Third, in verses 9 through 11, Paul goes on and he speaks of gospel illumination. He says this, and this I pray that your love, that love that, 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 I, that I want you to be able to call God as witness of because it's so genuine and so true. I pray that your love would abound more and more and more. Paul has covered the what, he's covered the why, he's going to cover the how. How does this look? What does this look like here? How does this work out practically so? I pray that your love would abound and I pray that these things would be true. Let's answer the question, what? What is Paul speaking of specifically here? Paul desires for their love to abound by its abundant abounding. I know it's repetitive in English, but in the, in, in the Greek in which Paul wrote it, it's, it's, I want love that abounds, and then once it abounds, it abounds again, and it abounds again. It's like, you know, putting the little uh, math equations and symbols that would tell us to keep going with that. Keep multiplying that. Keep abounding in that it's a familiar theme for paul in first thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12 paul says this to a different church and may the lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another you know paul is not scolding these people because they don't love each other at all paul saying my prayer for you my joy for you is that it would expand the love that you do have would expand. And that would be my prayer for our church. Is that the, it's not that we don't love each other at all, but that what love we do have would keep growing. It would keep multiplying. It would keep abounding. Let's not be satisfied with the love that we say we have now. Let's pray that it would increase. And that's Paul's heart. That's Paul's Joy is that, that, that these Christians would continue in that way. And so Paul's not scolding them. Paul's praying that, that what they do have, and even though it was had apparently in great measure already, but even then, may it abound even more. In John thirteen thirty five. 35, we, we hear from Jesus himself saying this, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How are people going to know you're a Christian? Because you stand up on a street corner and you preach? No, by your love for one another. Are they going to know by your church sign and the catchy little, you know, saying for the week underneath? No, they're going to know by your love for one another. I think it's not hard to look around and say that is so contrary to the world around us. The, the world around us does not love at all. They are out for themselves. 
They are out to benefit themselves, and anything that gets in the way, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are, they are willing to eat their own. If you don't believe me, you didn't pay attention to the news this past week. There's something of a delicious irony going on, isn't there? To, to, to watch people in, in, in opposing political groups within the same party turn on each other. And it's, and it's, it's quite ugly. In, in, in contradiction to that, Christians should be known by the way they love each other. We see the world's method. We, we see what the world does when the going gets tough, when you don't do exactly what they want you to do. They hate you. But Christians love. The gospel isn't funny. Or, sorry, the gospel's not fuzzy. It's not ambiguous. Not in its message and not in the reality that it produces. It produces love for one another. There is no question. If we are Jesus' disciples, we will love each other. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I think a great option, guys, if you're going to be my disciples, I think it would be wonderful if you would consider loving each other. Jesus says, here's how it is. Take it or leave it. If you're my disciples, you love one another. There's no room in the kingdom for people who don't love each other. That is the, the heart of the Christian faith that we love as Christ loves us. Nothing is more desirable than that we should be growing to show that more and more for one another. Secondly, Paul prays that their love would be accompanied by knowledge and discernment. Again, I think in the culture in which we live, love is so so misunderstood it's it's a and it's emotion it's a feeling it's a ambiguous thing that nobody can really define but the bible doesn't suffer such a lack of clarity using one familiar word and another that is the only usage in the new testament paul nails home the point that this love would be characterized by knowledge and discernment. They would gain hearts of an intimate understanding that is an applied understanding. It's not mere intellectual knowledge that Paul is after. It's intimate knowledge. You see, intellectual knowledge doesn't make you a loving person. Newsflash, just because you go through seminary and you spend all this time learning about the Bible and learning all about theology and learning all about church history, learning all these things, does not produce one ounce of love in a person. That is something only the Spirit of God can do. Now, those things are good and right and necessary, but it will not produce the type of knowledge Paul speaks of. It's real knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's applied knowledge. And it's coupled with discernment. Knowledge of Christ, knowledge of His ways, and knowing those things in their context enables us to be able to live out those things towards others as well. Brothers and sisters, a Christianity that has no real, no lasting, no personal knowledge, no intimate interaction 
is not a saving faith. It's merely a pretending faith. And that would be my concern as a shepherd. Lord, don't let us live out our entire lives on this earth, in this church, with a pretending knowledge. Let it be a real knowledge that abounds in love for Christ, for one another. True faith is a faith that will grow in its understanding, that works itself out in the practice and application in every aspect of our life. We know things, we have experienced things, we have been recipients of things in that knowledge, we understand what we have, and we exercise those in all discernment. The idea is that discernment is one of a moral nature. We, we clothe ourselves in a certain ethic and a certain morality and a certain way that we live our lives that is characterized by love, but it is a pure love in opposition to the world's, which is a fleshly and selfish and sinful love. Jesus says this in John sixteen thirteen. but when he, this, this is a, such a convicting verse. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Do you hear that? When the spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all truth. The knowledge that Paul is speaking of, how do we get that? The spirit leads us there, teaches us there, convinces us there. How is it then that as Christians we could say, well, no, I don't get it. Or I reject that. Either the Holy Spirit has failed, which he cannot do because he's God, or Jesus lied, which he cannot do because he is God. Because Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. A truth that produces love in us. A truth that produces character in us. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of the gospel's transformation of our life. I I grow concerned when, when, when I don't see fruit in my life and I don't see fruit in your life. It's concerning. Why? Because the Holy Spirit who indwells us will not fail in his mission of leading us into all truth. Discernment is the great missing piece in the Christian life, I think, today. It's shunned as legalistic or you know, condescending or any number of things. But, but Paul says, but Jesus says, that's exactly what the Spirit's going to produce in you. You'll, you'll be partakers of a, a knowledge and a discernment that is bathed in love for Christ and for one another. The Holy Spirit's come, brothers and sisters, to guide you into all truth. Paul would remind the Philippians in just a a, a few chapters, again, of this very thing. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Where does that come from? A gospel transformation. A love for Christ, a love for others that drive us to think and to live out right things. 
It's not what you profess, but how you live out your profession that is of concern to Paul and and to God himself. And Paul commends these people and he prays for these people that their love would be not willy-nilly and whatever goes and, you know, undefined. No, it's defined by true knowledge applied by real discernment. Why? Why does Paul say this? He answers that in verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. To approve the things that are excellent. We could say it more literally this way, that you may test them and then prove that which surpasses the value of anything else. That, that's a literal translation of that phrase. The word approve means to test something and to find it genuine and true. I forget who it is that said that, is it one of the, English poets who said the unexamined life is not worth living. Some of you literature people will know exactly who I'm speaking of, but I can't remember. The unexamined life is not worth living. The untested life for the Christian is not worth living. Paul says, listen, it needs to be examined to be approved. You know who I want operating on me? A doctor who's been approved, who's been through school, who's been through the medical boards, who's been through residencies, who's been through fellowships. That's who I want cutting my body open. Not some young kid who walks in and says, hey, I want to be a doctor and I watched YouTube last night. I want somebody who's been tested and found to be real and knowledgeable. That's the word genuineness is not real unless it has been tested. Brothers and sisters, your faith will be proven to be genuine because it's been tested. Paul isn't praying here for these people that they would live a life with no testing. Paul is actually praying the opposite. I want your life to be tested. Why? Because then we'll know it's genuine. We want the real thing. And Paul prays that their love and their knowledge would be so tested and forged and hardened and proven. We often get excited and think about the faith and the martyrs and the fact that they would not deny Christ. We're coming up here in just a few days on the month of October, my favorite month. And I love it for many things has nothing to do with pumpkin spiced anything but i do love it because of its history so much history transpired in the church in the month of october the 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 reformation is celebrated and remembered during the month of october and i love it and and i read passages in fox's book of martyrs and i read biographies of my heroes who suffered for their faith and we look at those guys and we we tend to kind of put them up on their pedestal and say wow how awesome how how great it is to be tested but you know it's not actually the testing paul has in mind the testing that paul has in mind is actually harder because paul is praying for their love to be tested their fellowship to be tested. Sometimes it's easier to die for someone than it is to live for someone. And Paul is praying that they would learn and be tested to live for each other. 
love and service is the heart of Paul's letter, isn't it? He says that he wants them to love one another. He uses Jesus as a servant and as an example. So what does it mean? It means that that irritating person or the person who's not just like us comes into our lives and we must show whether or not our love is true or fickle. Because they're frustrating to love. They're hard to love. That's a harder testing than saying deny Jesus is the Son of God. Because you have to live out that love of Christ for that other person day in and day out. That means that we, that what we profess about our belief in being different than the world and loving each other unlike the world does, that when we're faced with temptations or compromises to actually live out that love for one another we don't give in to ourselves we give in to the ways of God and the priority of loving others like Christ did more so let me ask you a question brothers and sisters how does your how is your faith holding up under those tests well you know they haven't led me to a stake to be burned yet my faith hasn't been tested nah your faith is tested every day And Paul says, I want it to be tested and I want it to be found sincere and genuine. I want it to be approved. How is your faith through your love being approved today? Is it genuine or is it an imposter? Paul says, not only do I want it approved, I want it to be sincere and blameless. To be sincere is to be genuine. Some believe the word was used of the ancient pottery trade in biblical times where Uh, There would be a crack in a piece of pottery and uh, unscrupulous pottery vendors who were quite necessary back in Paul's day would take wax and they would fill in the crack of the vessel with wax and then repaint it so that it looked like it had never been shattered. That's all well and fine until you hold it up to the light and light will find the crack. No matter how much paint, no matter how much wax, you can see the line when it's held up to the, pot, to the light. And, and, and Paul says, I want your life to be sincere like that, not, not the facade. I want people to put you up to the light and let the light shine and find the cracks. But I don't want there to be any cracks. I want, I want God to so work in you that the, the cracks are not there. You haven't tried to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. It's not a pretending faith. It's a genuine faith. It's a sincere faith. Without wax faith. He wants it to be genuine. He wants it to be blameless. Notice that word blameless at the end of verse 10. He wants it to be pure. The word means to be without offense. In other words, it would leave nothing over which someone could stumble or be led astray. It's the word that's used of elders in 1 Timothy 3. They are to be blameless, above reproach. doesn't mean perfect. There's no perfect person. But it does mean that they don't live a life that continually leaves things behind for people to trip over. Where there has been a failure or a sin, they make it right. And Paul is saying the same thing to to these Philippian believers. I want you to live a blameless life. Don't leave anything behind in your life over which someone could stumble. Make it right. Paul knows they're going to fail. Paul knows their love isn't perfect. That's why he's praying for them. 
Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Is your life a spiritual hazard for anyone? If people knew what you really were on the inside, if people really knew what you talked about in your home, if people really knew what you thought about in the secrecy of your own mind, would you be a spiritual hazard to someone or a spiritual help to them? Paul says, I I don't want you to be a spiritual hazard to anyone. I'm praying that you will be a spiritual help, however. And the test for all these things is simply this at the end of verse 10. Look at it. Until the day of Christ, just as at the end of verse 6. It's the day when Jesus comes and he examines all things and he judges all things. Listen, Jesus is going to find out sooner or later. You might as well get it right now. He's going to test you. Christian, he's going to test us. It's not just the unbelievers. It will be believers, not for eternal condemnation or life, but for reward. Rewards used in turn to worship him. To point to him as the source of those things. We will be tested. What will we reveal on that day Paul's sincere prayer is that their faith would be so strengthened and be so genuine and so real that when the coming of Jesus happens he will say nothing different than what has been being said already it was real it was genuine these people did serve and love one another just as they claimed to have loved and served me so they did how does it happen verse 11 How in the world do we get to that point? You may be sitting there this morning saying, I am so convicted. I am so guilty. I can't do this, but that's not true. Well, it is true on a human level, but it's not true for a Christian. He says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. How do we love like this? How do we engage like this i'll tell you how because christ works it in us christ supplies the power christ supplies the means that's why we've got to get the gospel right because getting the gospel right is the only way to make sure the realities of the gospel are present later here's the problem i mentioned earlier this idea of fellowship and and we have so many substitutes we're going to create fellowship by doing this we're going to create fellowship by doing this we're going to create love we're going to make people love each other by doing you can't do that but christ can because christ alone can change the heart and paul says it is by The filling of the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Josh read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That's amazing. He exchanged something worthy of eternal punishment for something that can only yield eternal blessing. Christ did that. 
to be saved by Christ and then have the fruit of righteousness that the Holy Spirit produces in us in an ongoing way is such good news for us. We don't have to do this on our own. We can't do it on our own. But Christ and the Spirit in us can and will and does. By faith, taking on the righteousness of Christ, we are able to accomplish all of these things. By the Spirit, by submitting to the work of the Spirit, He produces that fruit in us. Again, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Not the fruit of Brian trying to look like the Spirit is. There's a difference. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of righteousness that He alone can produce in us. This is God's work. Notice the last thing that Paul says as to the how that this happens. We are filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through the Lord Jesus Christ Lastly, we live for the glory and praise of God. How do we live out the realities of the gospel in our lives? We live it out because our greatest desire, our highest goal in life is to bring glory to the Lord, to bring praise to God our Father, to cause others to want to praise Him more because of what they see in us. When we live like that, brothers and sisters, these realities become more feasible, don't they? I'm not living for myself. I'm not living for what I want. I'm not living for what I think things should be like. I'm living for what glorifies God and only glorifies God. Do you want to glorify God? What are your goals in life? What does drive you? If if what drives you is Him being thought of rightly in the eyes of everyone around you, then you will live like this. But if other things are more importantly, you will not. And you will hurt others and you will hurt yourself by living out other desires, selfish desires, fleshly desires. But a a desire to glorify God is essential. It is the power and the reasoning and the how of doing all things. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10, For am I now seeking the favor of man or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. Do you want to please God? Well, at that moment, all of these realities become possibilities. Avenues for us to do that. Brothers and sisters, the gospel gives us confidence. The gospel gives us a camaraderie as being fellow partakers. And the gospel gives us illumination. It shows us the way in which we should go. But the power of Christ worked out in us. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare to receive the Lord's table this morning. This all comes at great cost. It's a cost that no human could pay. Because no human has perfect righteousness to give. We don't have enough for ourselves, let alone enough to give. But Christ who does possess and is only perfect righteousness. Died in our place. 
shed his blood to cover our sins and gave us his robe of righteousness. We sang that hymn just a few moments ago, his robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. We've been granted the righteousness of Christ by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. So that these things can be true of us.